Good day to our listeners here on Waterberg Stereo. You're listening to the 17th edition of our program von Ferdinandafi Legal News. We are going to have a discussion today on um, two, which I believe are interesting legal topics. Uh, my name is Volker Kruger. I'm a lawyer here in Rustenburg at the firm von Ferdinandafi. Uh, first one, uh, we're going to talk to Nicola Lemaita regarding living annuities and the very important court case that was recently uh, decided on in that respect, dealing with uh, living annuities and most, more specifically, the court uh, confirmed that the living annuity or the income derived from it is indeed now an asset in uh, spouse's estate for purposes of the accrued claim. So uh, we will uh, ask to Nicola to explain the facts and the uh, decision uh, to us and uh, give you some advice, uh, which uh, might be very important to keep in mind in the case of a divorce. And then uh, secondly, uh, we will also be talking to Ismadi McCalligan regarding the, um, yeah, I would uh, say um, disturbing case of the Minister of Police against Kay dealing with uh, the rape of a woman in uh, Port Elizabeth, and uh, the court uh, came to the conclusion that the police is not liable for the damages that the woman uh, suffered after the rape, despite the fact that they had several opportunities to prevent um, the uh, rape from happening in the first uh, place. So uh, we will deal with uh, that court case as well. So yeah, please uh, uh, stay tuned and please remember that you can also listen to our podcast, which you can find on our website. If you go to media on our website and search for Waterberg Stereo, you'll find the podcast for all the previous programs that we did uh, on our website, and you can uh, listen to them and hopefully get some uh, sound uh, legal advice. We're talking to Nicola Lemaita. She's been on the program a couple of times before. Today is an interesting topic, uh, I'd say, dealing with uh, living annuities and divorces. So any uh, listeners who might be uh, involved in a divorce and have uh, living annuities or uh, in any event, you know, have living annuities um, with their financial advisors, etc., must uh, please listen and uh, let's uh, see what the outcome of this decision of the Supreme Court of Appeal uh, was. Um, but yeah, Nicola, maybe as a, as a start, um, what is a a living annuity. This case uh, evolved around, you know, living annuity. Um, so I guess it's rather important to understand what a living annuity is. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, a living annuity can be defined um, as a special type of compulsory purchase annuity, um, which is offered by insurers and retirement funds. Um, and under this annuity, the income is not guaranteed, but is dependent on the performance of the underlying investments. Yes. Um, so I know that doesn't really, or to most listeners, I don't know if that will really make any sense. Um, but I often find it much easier when you look at the characteristics of this annuity. Um, firstly, once a living annuity is purchased, the underlying capital in the annuity is no longer accessible to the annuitant. Um, so that's quite important to take note of. Um, and then also the annuitant can then choose the level of annuity income and the frequency thereof, um, which he withdraws from this annuity 
Um, and that can be between a minimum of two and a half percent and a maximum of 17.5 percent. And this is determined by the Minister of Finance. Um, then this annuitant only has the option um, to change the income percentage on the anniversary date of the annuity, so once per year. Um, and then also these annuities, they are non-commutable and is based on the lifetime of the retiring member. So it kind of aims to ensure that your money lasts as long as you do, basically. Um, then important for our purposes, um, the proceeds of the annuity income do not fall within the ambit of pension interest as de defined in the Divorce Act. Um, so you cannot with this annuity give a part or all of it to an ex-spouse in um, terms of a divorce order. Okay, so it's a sort of a deal that you make with the um, insurance company or the investment company in terms of which you leave the capital with them so they know they have the money to invest you know, for their mm. purposes, uh, yeah. because you can't just withdraw the capital and then they guarantee you that, um, well, then they give you that income, eh? but it's not guaranteed. It's linked to the performance of the underlying investment you, you, you mentioned, yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Okay. So, so um, yeah, I, I think that was also relevant in, in, in the case, no? if, if I remember correctly, the fact that, that the capital, um, you know, belongs to the, uh, invests with the insurance company, you know, no longer uh, invest with, with, with the investor. But let's maybe um, ask you, uh, what were the facts of the case? What happened? What was the uh, dispute about? Yeah, so um, the parties here, they were married in community of property with accrual. Um, and during the oh, marriage... Sorry, out of community, no? You said in community, you mean out of community, no? with oh, accrual. Yeah, my apologies, out of community with the accrual. Yes, um, yes. So during the marriage, Mr. Montanari, um, he purchased three living annuities and he received his monthly income from these annuities. And he yeah. then later on um, instituted the divorce proceedings. So okay. as part of the divorce proceedings, he sought an order declaring that these living annuities did not form part of his estate and that they therefore um, are not subject to the accrual. So obviously, um, if you are standing on the other side of this argument, um, it's no surprise that this matter went as far as the SEA. You definitely do not want to be in the position then of Mrs. Montanari. Okay. The accrual system, uh, maybe we can just remind our listeners, that's basically where you get made out of community of property and you agree that the growth of the value of your estates will be shared by the parties equally. No? So if there's a divorce, it's very important to determine what the value of each spouse's estate is at the date of, uh, of the divorce, because mm -hmm. uh, that will determine the size of the accrual claim that the spouse uh, will have whose um, accrual was smaller. No? So if, for example, um, the husband's estate grew with a bigger amount than the wife's estate, then the wife would have a claim against the husband for the difference of the accrual. No? So if yes. you then determine the value of the husband's estate for the, the accrual claim purposes, it's very important to make mm. sure that all assets that should be included uh, are indeed included. And yeah, and in this case, am I right? The husband argued um, that the living annuity or annuity should not be included no, for the purposes of the uh, accrual claim. Was that his argument? 
Yes, um, and exactly it makes sense um, after hearing, as you explained, the whole um, idea of the accrual. So he's saying that this annuities, which are often very large amounts, he's saying it doesn't fall in his estate, so it cannot be part of the accrual, which will obviously make the accrual much less. Um, so he said um, that this, the ownership of this capital, which he has invested, it invests or invest in the insurer, it's not part of his estate. Okay, all right. And, and, and the court, did the court uh, uh, agree with that? What did the court find? Who won the case, the husband or the wife? Well, the trial court in Johannesburg, um, they accepted Mr. Montanari's argument um, and found that the annuities, indeed, it wasn't part of his estate. Um, it couldn't be brought into calculation for the purposes of the accrual. And that is where his wife then proceeded to appeal um, to the full bench. And then eventually they wound up um, before the ACA. Okay, that's the Supreme Court of Appeal now. And, and, and the Supreme Court of Appeal, what, what was the finding there? Yeah, and I think if I can just explain kind of the weight of this judgment, um, so it also makes practical sense to our listeners. Um, we must remember um, that if the court concludes on the one hand that the living annuity forms part of one's estate, it could defeat the purpose of the annuity, um, which is to provide an income stream so that pensioners do not become a burden on the state. Um, so this is because an annuitant could then theoretically be placed um, under severe financial pressure to pay an amount from the annuities that would constitute then part of the accrual, and he could potentially be left without any income at all. But then, of course, on the other hand, um, to conclude that the living annuity is excluded from one's estate could lead to a scenario where a married person who had accumulated, um, for example, 100 million rand before divorce um, could just put that in a living annuity. And this would be the untenable result of diminishing his estate to the detriment of his spouse. Um, because the exactly. value of his estate, yes, exactly, would then, um, for the purposes of the accrual, be much less. Yeah, that would, I mean, be a nice loophole to take, no? Yes, a loophole, exactly. Um, but yeah, the ACA, um, when they heard this matter, they started by assessing the precise nature of a living annuity investment um, in the light of the relevant legislation, um, previous court cases and evidence of experts um, which were called by the parties during the trial. Um, and having regard to all of this, the ACA then reaffirmed that on a proper interpretation of the relevant legislation, the living annuities were not a pensionable, pensionable interest as defined by the Divorce Act, um, and that the ownership of the underlying capital um, based in Sanlam, the insurer from um, which they were purchased. Okay. Um, and even though the court did find this, and this was in line with previous judgments, and obviously the courts um, from which the appeal came, the ACA nonetheless felt that this did not disentitle Mrs. Montanari um, from having any claim whatsoever with regards to the respondent's annuities. So the court found um, that the respondent has a very clear right to the investment returns yielded by his capital reinvestment with Sanlam. And this is then in the form of the future annuity income, um, which he draws from the agreement. Um, and that is then, as I explained, between the 2.5 or the 17.5%. Um, and then also you can determine um, whether it's on a quarterly basis or on a monthly basis. So such annuity income is then an asset in his estate, which can be valued and is subject to the accrual. 
So um, the ACI was then of the opinion that the trial court erroneously considered the annuity income relevant only for the purpose of a maintenance claim, and it should have found it to be an asset in the respondents, Mr. Montanari's estate, um, subject to the accrual, and they should have allowed an expert witness to provide a valuation of that income stream. Okay, so the wife uh, won the case. Yes, in essence, um, unfortunately, we will still have to keep an eye on, on what is going to happen here. Um, this court was only tasked with dealing or answering this one question, is it part of the estate or not? And um, is it should it be considered um, as part of the calculation for accrual? But the SEA then um, referred, having answered that question, um, they referred the matter back to the trial court, um, where they will then have to... Um, where evidence will have to be led on the value of this right of the respondent to receive the future payments um, in respect of the living annuities. Okay. And yeah, the, the value, I guess, is, in other words, not simply the capital, uh, because the capital vests in Sunlam. It doesn't vest in, in, in the husband. So uh, you've got to have a look at the income that is uh, generated in future by that living annuity. And then based on that, you got to work out the value, and that is then used for the accrual system. Am I right? Exactly. Um, I can accept that it's going to be quite a complex calculation that will have to be done by some form of expert, not not something that you can just um, determine by having a look at at, at one document. Um, so that yeah. will have to be left in the hands of an expert. Okay. So yeah, maybe in conclusion, uh, what what advice can we give? Uh, Clients, I guess this is a rather important decision, eh, far-reaching uh, consequences. Yeah, it definitely is. It's um, quite a, a landmark judgment, I would say. Um, it, there was quite a gap in the law previously, as I said, um, where one party can just take a huge, a large amount um, of money and put it in a living annuity, and that's the end of it. The other spouse will never have any claim. Um, so this judgment definitely kind of fills that gap. Um, practically, we will have to wait and see how the, the trial court deals with it and what the consequences um, in random sense kind of will be for, for Mrs. Montanari, but it definitely um, makes a change in our law um, for the better, I can also say. All right. I guess that's important uh, advice to all, uh, once again, listeners that uh, are involved in a divorce where there might be living annuities uh, relevant or any listeners that might uh, decide to take out living annuities. Obviously, it might still be, based on your financial position, a good idea to get a living annuity. Uh, but uh, uh, if um, this uh, agreement, uh, sorry, if this decision is now enforced in future, then obviously uh, it will be relevant for uh, an accrual claim uh, as opposed to what the position was before. Once again, uh, thank you, Nicola. Um, we talked to Esme not long ago about a claim of a woman that was injured in a clicks outlet when a plate of the air conditioning unit fell on um, on her head, I think. Um, now, the outcome of that case is not yet uh, finalized, but I actually thought that what we want to discuss today, uh, Ismarie, which is the Minister of Police against K uh, case, is sort of a bit comparable. Uh, would you agree with, with that? Certain uh, legal principles that were relevant, as we discussed the other day, are also relevant for this case? Yes, Volker. The, the principles regarding negligence um, is, is uh, prominent in both cases. So in that, 
in that sense, the cases are comparable. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, what happened in this case? Uh, I think the uh, Minister of Police was uh, sued as in his capacity as, as such. Um, what are the, uh, the facts? Um, what happened that led to the claim being instituted? Volker, the, the facts of this case is actually um, quite extensive and obviously very important in determining whether there's negligence or not. I, I will try and summarize it as best possible. Um, but what happened in this case is Miss Kay, she's only known as Kay in the case, um, was walking along the beach. She was supposed to catch a flight back to Johannesburg at uh, 7 o'clock that evening. And she had some spare time, so she was walking around the beach, I believe in the uh, PE area. And when a man abducted her, assaulted her, and continuously and repeatedly raped her until uh, six o'clock the next morning. So it was quite a long and traumatic ordeal for her. He um, abducted her and held her in captivity between, uh, between some vegetation that was in sand dunes behind the beach. So it was a bit secluded. When Miss Kay didn't return home and, and timelessly caught her flight, her family reported her missing at around seven o'clock that evening. And the police then found her vehicle in the parking lot at the beach at around 11, 11.30 that evening. Um, they conducted, the police conducted a search for her using a, a search and rescue dog as well as a helicopter to look for her along the beach, along the shoreline and, and um, in the dunes. Now for purposes of her claim, I will get uh, into a bit more detail regarding what they did in the search and rescue in, and the investigation a bit later. But the bottom line is that they could not find her and abandoned the search during the early morning hours. She managed to escape from captivity around about six o'clock the next morning, and then somebody helped her and took her to the police to report the case. But the police never found the perpetrator and he was never prosecuted. This happened uh, in 2010 already. So, Ms. Kay instituted action against the police for damages she suffered, specifically psychological damages. Um, and she alleged that the police had a duty, a constitutional duty, to keep um, South Africans safe and secure and to prevent, combat and investigate crimes, um, specifically crimes like, in this case, the rape and the abduction and assault, etc. And they also owed a duty to protect her dignity and, and all the other rights she had in the Bill of Rights. Now, the police admitted that they have this duty, but they denied that they were negligent in searching for her and the subsequent investigation for the perpetrator afterwards. Um, this, she was successful in the High Court and the police was found to be 40% negligent uh, or liable for her damages, 40% of her damages. But the police appealed to the Supreme Court of Appeal and the case that I will specifically be discussing today is the judgment of the Supreme Court of Appeal. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court of Appeal um, upheld the appeal 
So that means the, the police was successful in, in fending off this claim. Okay, okay. So, so in the court of quo, she got 40%, but unfortunately in the Supreme Court of Appeal, um, she wasn't successful at all. So, um, yes. yeah, that's, um, that's obviously bad news for, for her as, as plaintiff. Um, so, so what was the reasoning of, of the court? Why uh, did they overturn the, the previous judgment? Why did they find that the police is not liable? I will, for this question, I will go into a bit more detail regarding what happened in the search and the investigation. I must point out, um, maybe this is just my personal opinion, but I was quite disappointed in the reasoning of the Supreme Court of Appeal. Um, but in essence, the Supreme Court of Appeal looked at the test for negligence. I believe I mentioned it in the previous article, we also um, discuss, but the test, test for negligence is the following. It's, it's whether a reasonable person in the position of the defendant would foresee the possibility of, of their, their conduct causing harm and would take reasonable steps to guard against such occurrence. And the defendant failed to take those reasonable steps. In short, he failed to act the same as, an, as a reasonable person would. Um, the court did mention that where an organ of state is your defendant. You don't measure their conduct against that of a reasonable person, but against that of a reasonable organ of state, taking into account um, things such as resources available to them, etc. Um, the same goes for all other cases. It won't always be the reasonable person. For example, if you sue an attorney for negligence, their conduct is measured against a reasonable attorney. If you sue a shop, like we discussed last, their conduct is measured against the reasonable shop, for example. So um, let me go into what exactly happened with the search and the investigation in order to understand the, the judgment by the court. When, like I mentioned, they found a vehicle at the beach at around 11.30 that evening and at shortly after 12.30 that evening, uh, a police officer came with his search and rescue dog and he started the first search for her. Um, he drove along the shoreline first to um, look for her and make sure she didn't maybe drown or commit suicide. That's what they initially thought. Um, and when that yielded no results, he decided to take the next step, which was to take his search and rescue dog and cover the area behind the beach, which is the dunes where she was um, held captive. And he explained in detail the procedures he followed with the dog, such as, you know, walking against the direction of the wind so that the dog can actually pick up a scent. And they searched in a zigzag pattern to make sure they covered everything. The dog was off a leash, so the dog was running about um, 20 to 25 meters in front of him. And when they reached the end of that area, there was a fence. Um, the police officer didn't walk to the fence. He turned around when the dog reached the fence and came back. Um, that was a, an important consideration in the High Court. Um, thereafter, he called um, the helicopter unit and they then searched that area with a, with a helicopter and with a light, but they only conducted the search for about 20 minutes. It did cover most of the area, but they also didn't see her because she was actually held, held captive 
like beneath some bushes, so they couldn't really see him. But they had to land after 20 minutes because another aircraft was coming in and aircraft officials asked them to land for safety reasons, but also because the area where Ms. K was held captive was close to a, a, a restricted airspace area because there were gas and everything. So they could actually not fly um, over that restricted airspace area. And then the, um, the weather also turned and it became misty, so they couldn't, in any event, couldn't continue their, their search and they abandoned the search at that stage. Now, like I mentioned, the court went into detail about the, the steps they took and what is proper procedure and so on. I won't mention all those details, but the High Court found um, that the police was negligent. For example, between the period when they found her vehicle and when the first search was conducted by the um, by the guy with the search and rescue dog, it seemed the evidence before the court was that the other police officers were just sort of standing around. They never, never conducted a foot search and walked around and searched for her. It was only that drive along the shoreline, the dog and the helicopter. And the court found that that wasn't reasonable in the circumstances. The police at the, the very basic search they could have done was to do a foot search and walk around and search for her and call out her name and so on. The other thing is the that uh, that portion where the dog went up until the fence, but the police officer didn't. He turned around when the dog turned around. The court also found that that was negligent. If he had walked to the fence where the dog um reached, then he would have seen that there was apparently an extra space. The fence made a turn, so there was an extra area that he could have searched. And then if he had done so, he probably would have found her, um, which which could have resulted there in that she would have been spared another three or four hours of the assault. Um, the Supreme Court of Appeal, on the other hand, found that they weren't really negligent in this regard. Um, the court found that the High Court's decision that, that the police was negligent didn't support the evidence before it. It held that you can't hold the police liable for not um, conducting a further helicopter search because there was a restricted airspace and they were not allowed to fly anymore because of the fact that another aircraft was approaching and because of the fact that the weather didn't allow it. So they did everything within their means to search for her regarding the helicopter. The court also found regarding this, the dark um, unit search and rescue that they also did everything in their power. They first um, went along the shoreline and then into the dunes where she was actually held captive. And uh, you know, the way in which they conducted the search and the steps they explained to the court, the court found that, that you know, they did everything in their power and, and to the court's mind, they did act reasonable, uh, especially taking into account that he did um, two searches, one along the shoreline and one in the dunes, and then called in the helicopter to take the next step. So the court didn't find the police negligent in this regard. What I haven't really mentioned yet is the investigation afterwards. She, a portion of her claim was also based on um, them not conducting a proper investigation afterwards. And one of the sticking points 
that was discussed is that she said the the warrant officer who was supposed to investigate this case afterwards didn't properly conduct um, the investigation. For example, there was CCTV footage uh, available of the parking lot and the police had that footage, but the officer that investigated her case never even viewed that footage to see if there is a suspect um, that should be interviewed or, you know, take whatever steps necessary to, to try and find her. The evidence before the High Court was actually to the effect that that police officer didn't even know that there was a man depicted loitering around that area. Um, he didn't even know the footage showed that. What was quite disappointing for me is the Supreme Court of Appeal stance on this. Um, the Supreme Court of Appeal said that the officer wasn't negligent because he gave, the evidence showed, he gave a copy of the footage to Ms. Kay's private investigator. She had to appoint private investigators when she felt the police weren't doing their job. But he gave a copy of the footage to the private investigators and they gave it to her, but she didn't view it because it was too traumatic for her still. And um, the court found that the only person who could have identified a possible suspect on the footage would have been Ms. Kay and she never viewed it which is to my mind quite disappointing, especially taking into account that the evidence before the High Court was actually that the officer never viewed it himself. It's um, disappointing to think that people have to um, appoint at their own cost private investigators um, to view footage when that is quite something quite simple that the police could have done and should have done. But um, that was that was the Supreme Court Court of Appeals reasoning behind that to find them also not negligent. Um, another point was that there was DNA testing when they found her and she showed them um, where she was held captive. There was some items they recovered that had blood and possible semen on it, and they sent it to the lab. But there was never any tests conducted on it until shortly before the trial. It seems. And that might have been negligent on the part of the police, but the Supreme Court of Appeals said that that, that was actually not one of the uh, grounds for negligence. So he can't make a finding against them um, because she didn't allege that that was negligent on their part. A very important thing I want to mention is the one of the elements of a delay that you have to prove is causation. You have to prove, even if somebody is found negligent, you actually have to prove that there's a causal link between your damages and that negligence. Now, in this case, this was also very important because the experts that testified on behalf of Ms. Kay, as well as the joint minutes they had with the experts of the police, found that she was, you know, she had permanent psychological damage and she's going to require psychiatric treatment for an indefinite period. She had depression, she had post-traumatic stress disorder. It was really a, a traumatic event for, for her. However, none of the experts could quantify what portion of her damages is as a result of the police um, search and the investigation, as opposed to what portion can be attributed to the rape. So they couldn't really uh, give that causal link. The High Court um, reason that 
Had she been found a few hours earlier, she would have been spared a few hours of the ordeal and maybe a trauma would have been less. Um, but that wasn't supported by what the experts said. The experts couldn't um, distinguish which portion of a trauma is as a result of the police and which portion is as a result of the event. So that was a very important point that the court found that the, he, he can't um, have her claim succeed because no causal link was proven because um, between the possible negligence of the police and her damages. And a very important remark that the court make, made was to say that if they were to find the police liable for her damages, it would make it very difficult for police in general to conduct investigations and and search missions, etc., in future, because it would any slight degree of negligence would expose them to civil litigation. And this is quite unfortunate. I can understand where the court is coming from that they don't want to flood the courts with you know every person instituting a claim against the police if they feel they were negligent. But on the other hand, the the police has a very important constitutional duty to ensure the safety and security of people, especially in a country like ours where violence against women is so prominent. Um, so to my mind, the a comment like this, it shouldn't be in the back of, it shouldn't be a determining factor in a case that you can't hold the police liable because this would open the door to more cases. Um, I don't think, uh, I think this comment was quite inappropriate. Like I said, I can see where it comes from, but I think it was quite inappropriate in the circumstances and taking into account the, the crime rate in our, con in our country. So at the end of the day, the Supreme Court of Appeal held that he couldn't find the police negligent and unfortunately he can't hold them liable for the damages that she, that she suffered. And he dis, um, upheld the appeal because it was the police that appealed. And he um, replaced the High Court's order with an order that her case is dismissed. Unfortunately, um, Ms. Kay would have to pay the costs of the police in both the High Court and the Supreme Court of Appeal, which includes the cost of two counsels. So she was slapped with um, quite a, a hefty legal cost bill afterwards. Sure, yeah, I sure, guess, yeah, I guess that devastating yeah. outcome for her. Um, but yeah, from a legal point of view, um, a good demonstration of how uh, the court applies the reasonable person test né, to see whether there was negligence and whether the intellectual claim for damages uh, should succeed uh, or not, um, I guess. And, and yeah, um, the question with all these types of um, tests and cases, I, I would think, is, is how, um, you know, how high would the standard have to be according to the court for the specific person's uh, actions? No? Um, I mean, on the one hand, you might get your average Joe who is not very vigilant and who, um, won't really prevent other people from uh, being harmed. And then you might get your Superman no? who uh, will do everything uh, perfectly. So I guess in this case, the bar is set a bit lower than um, one, as you said, might uh, want uh, it to be set for the police. No? Um, so yeah, uh, 
I guess uh, that's where it's also difficult to predict the outcome of these types of cases uh, because it's maybe not that uh, easy to predict what, you know, how high the bar will be set by the court. Um, obviously, in the case of a, an attorney, you would expect the actions of the attorney to be in line with a reasonable uh, attorney. In other words, someone who has got the necessary uh, expertise and qualifications and, and know-how. And the same should truly apply to a policeman. Eh? He should also um, meet some higher standards than your average Joe, once again, who is not trained as a policeman, who is not experienced as a, as a policeman, etc. So, um, yeah, sad outcome once again for the plaintiff. But okay, um, what what uh, do we learn from this? What what advice can you give uh, our listeners? I guess uh, think twice before you institute an intellectual claim against the police. Yeah, I think unfortunately that is the warning that we have to to send out. I think. Um, in general, um, a lot of people think that the police aren't always doing their job properly. And the first thing when, when, when things go wrong, they think about, can I institute a claim against the police? And I think um, I want to give the same advice that I gave in the previous discussion is your, your preparation um, and the way your case is formulated and the evidence you put before the court is so, so, so important um, to ensure that you don't sit with uh, the result where you've lost the case and you have to pay an enormous legal bill. Um, unfortunately, um, you, you really have to, you and your attorney really have to do your homework beforehand and, and make sure every single thing um, is alleged and can be proven by you to make sure that you can overcome this this bar set by the court to hold the police liable. Um, it, I just want to mention, it, it was her, her, her advocates actually asked the Supreme Court of Appeal not to grant a cost order against her if she should lose the case because she was merely trying to uh, enforce her constitutional rights. But the Supreme Court of Appeal found that that was not a exceptional circumstance that would allow it to deviate from the general rule that the winner um, should be compensated for their costs. And you can think this was litigation for um, that, that lasted seven years. And she testified that the litigation already put extra stress on her and, and increased her depression. So to think now of seven years of this emotional roller coaster of litigation, um, and you're already depressed, and now you're sitting with a legal bill for the High Court and the Supreme Court of Appeal, including cost of two counsel, um, which means two advocates, I think she'll, you know, it, it'll be hundreds of thousands of rents, if not in the millions that she would have to pay for this case. So, um, like I said, I was at the end of the day quite disappointed in the decision and the reasoning that the Supreme Court of Appeal um, held. And it, it certainly sends the warning to to make very sure about your case before you institute action. I don't know if she will appeal to the Constitutional Court. Um, maybe. Uh, maybe they will come to a different conclusion. But there, this is certainly a warning to litigants to make sure um, that, that your case is solid before you incur this, this legal cost. 
Okay. Thanks a lot, Desmarie. We'll certainly keep an eye on developments there and uh, let our listeners know if there is an appeal to the Constitutional Court and what the outcome there uh, might be. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Esprit. That was an interesting one. Yeah, that's all for today. Our email address is info at vvd.co.za, VVD for Van Felden Duffy. You are welcome to send us your questions and your uh, comments, and then we'll uh, see whether we can maybe deal with some of those on our uh, program. And uh, yeah, make sure that you tune in again uh, next week, Wednesdays between uh, 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also Friday evenings between 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock.